In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Christ is ascended in glory. Glorify Him. This feast, while it plays its role in completing the story, Christ comes in the cave in Bethlehem, Christ goes at the Feast of Ascension, is a feast which is so elusive. The fathers who comment on this feast are preoccupied with the fact that Christ does not dematerialize as he disappears from the view of his disciples and the others who were there at the Ascension in Bethany. Their conclusion is that he goes beyond the heavens to that place that is no place, where the Holy Trinity dwells eternally, and that he is seated, as we say in our inevitably anthropomorphic language, seated on the right hand of the Father in his humanity. So the fathers begin to suspect what is the human potential what is the potentiality of this flesh of ours which grows old and weak, which becomes ill, which can be filled with pain and suffering? This flesh which betrays us in so many ways, what is its actual potentiality? If the flesh is what the dominant, I would say even the universal culture of the time of Christ says it is, that is something which is inherently, by definition, evil and wicked, something to be shed like the dead skin of a snake. <laughs> something to be cast aside. You know, the ancient Greek pagans had that little saying, they love sayings like this, soma sima. Soma means the body, psychosomatic, and sima is the tomb. The body is the grave of the soul. <clears throat> when we uh, see on the news some burial of some uh, personage in India. I remember the, uh, the burial of uh, Indira Gandhi. Her son, if you remember, who succeeded her as prime minister, came up at a certain point with a very beautifully made but heavy hammer, and he, he uh, smashed her skull to release the spirit from the dereliction of the flesh. That, of course, is a Hindu preoccupation, but it's also very much the preoccupation of the ancient pagan Greeks. And when the Holy Fathers evidence, and they evidence this in every way, time and time again, the fact that they regard all the uh, ancient Greek pagan philosophers as despicable. They despise them 
it is because all that great wisdom of ancient pagan Greece was for them a lie. It became for them a lie. It was revealed as the big lie through their contact with their knowledge of the Savior Jesus Christ. There's that lovely and very funny phrase in the Akathistos hymn to the Virgin Mary that uh, because of the incarnation, the great and wise philosophers of ancient Greece become, you remember, dumb as fish. And so it is that uh, this, and I'm giving this just as a parenthesis, a footnote, this is why the Greek fathers, down to the very last of them, regarded the West and its theologizing with such suspicion, because they recognized, of course, they'd all studied Greek philosophy when they went to school. They all knew Plato and Aristotle and the rest of them. They recognized how deeply indebted Western Latin theology, Aquinas and Augustine and the rest of them, had become to the pagan Greeks. And they were scratching their uh, sanctified heads and saying, for heaven's sakes, what are these people up to? What are they doing? Why are they going back to that to uh, discover some, uh, some truth? And the West has stood before the crossroads of either the wisdom of the pagans or the dispensation, the revelation of Christian scriptures and so forth, uh, in a quandary almost from the beginning, certainly from the time of Augustine in the 5th century. And uh, this is a very large problem for, uh, for the Orthodox, who of course, so many of us live either in the West geographically, or even if you live in Greece or the Balkans or Russia, or a historically Orthodox country, you are now living in the West thanks to the curse of television and television programming out of, uh, out of the U.S. and now out of Western Europe, which corrupts everywhere it goes. In the first year that uh, the Greek government allowed an American soap opera to be played in Greece, uh, the divorce rate shot up 8%. It had been stable for centuries. So the corrupting influence of, uh, of Western paganized, paganizing culture is very great. But this feast is one of the large moments which convinced the Greek fathers that all that, uh, all that ancient Greek wisdom and talk, and for that matter the wisdom of ancient uh, India as well, is hogwash and balderdash. It's gibberish. We do not have to release a pure and dematerialized soul or spirit from uh, a corrupt and inherently evil body in order to gain eternal life. This feast lays down in large print and in bold typeface a very great and contradictory truth, and that is that the Lord who has ascended with the sound of the trumpet the Christ who ascended in glory and sat down on the right hand of the Father did so as an incarnated entity. 
our humanity, our humanity, the one we touch and feel, the one that uh, is a source, yes, of so much pain and ambivalence, that humanity is seated at the very heart of the life of the Holy Trinity. And this astounding truth, this, this astonishing datum, a datum far more astonishing than any of the data to be derived from the most advanced cutting-edge science, now or at any point in the future, that is the datum of all data, the fact of facts. Through this feast, the Holy Fathers suspect in their inspired way what is the actual destiny of all mankind. What are the possibilities open unto us? And so we see what, where, where do we confirm this, you and I? Every day we pick up a book, all of us, any one of the by now several editions of the lives of the saints. And we see saints who are harvested in the flower and bloom of youth and strength as young soldiers who are martyred. And we see saints who are terribly ill all their life. We see men and women who grow old in the, at the heart of suffering, the suffering of a sickened flesh. We see saints who very clearly are dying of cancer, of heart disease. We see saints who are uh, suffering from all kinds of maladies which not only were beyond the uh, cure of ancient medicine, but which today still elude uh, cures. So we know that men and women go to their graves under all kinds of circumstances, including circumstances, yes, even of mental illness. I've mentioned so many times the fact that uh, when uh, in 68 uh, a group of us, more conservative types, most of us at the time in the Russian church abroad, uh, were in, living in New York. I was in graduate school at the time, graduated from St. Vladimir's already. And uh, we decided to ask Father Florovsky to make a commitment to come to Earl Hall, which is the religious center on the campus of Columbia University in Manhattan, once a month for the whole year. Because, you know, the debate was, well, every month we'll have a different speaker. But then we said, well, we've got Florovsky right over here across the river in, in Princeton. Why don't we have him for the whole year? And, uh, of course, <laughs> as you can imagine, there was no argument with that. <laughs> so uh, Florovsky came. And I must say, hey, who were we? We were uh, arrogant little uh, grad students. We knew, you know, unlike most others, we understood. You know, we, we were going to have letters after our names, after all, which proved that to us and most other people. So we expected Father Florovsky to entertain us intellectually with high theology. And uh, he came, you know, he was a very tall man, and by the time this was going on, rather bent over. And uh, the first thing that he said to us was that when he was in Paris, after he was ordained, he was ordained late. He wasn't ordained till he was 40. 
he was assigned to a hospital that was, uh, was where they put all the Russians in Paris. And there was a little girl there, I believe, as I recall the story, she was about eight years old. And she was vegetative. And I don't recall whether he told us why she was vegetative. Was it an accident? Was it an illness? Was she born that way? I don't know. But her grieving parents, of course, grieving because here was this little girl, and what could you say? What could you say? Told him that uh, they hoped that when he visited the hospital, that he would look in on their daughter. And he said, well, I'll give her communion. Oh, no, they said, you don't, can't give her communion because, you know, she's in a vegetative state. He said, well, so? And they were very surprised because all the Russian priests who had visited, mostly from Saint-Serge at that time, uh, until then had gone in and, you know, they would give her a blessing and they would make the sign of the cross on her forehead. Maybe they'd anoint her with oil. But that was that. They would say a little prayer and go on. And uh, he took her communion. Well, the parents came. And he had told them when he was going to be there. They were there. And they said, Father, are you sure? I'm sure. So they set her up and the father kind of braced her and supported her with her, and he gave her communion. The mother opened the little girl's mouth, and he said, as he looked at her face, her eyes were open, he understood that there was a dimension of her existence which understood perfectly exactly what had occurred and responded to it, even though at the level of the mind and all the things that we could see with our earthly eyes, there was no change. But it was given to him, and he was so moved as he told the story. Now, my goodness, uh, this would have been in the late 30s. And he was telling us 30, 35 years later in, in New York City. He was so moved that uh, he began to uh, cry. And uh, we were all sitting there, of course, proud, arrogant, proud students. And we were thinking, what is he telling us these old wives' tales for, you know? Of course, as we got older <laughs> and dropped all that arrogance, to some extent, I hope, uh, we understood what he was saying to us. He was telling us a story about the human mind, including our own, and what was important at what, and what truly counts, and that God is operating at a level of depth and in a dimension that we do not know. It is given only to very few people to penetrate the veil of that dimension which is alive with grace and alive with the presence of the Holy Trinity, that dimension in which the saints live quite naturally. There's a story about a, a very simple monk. And uh, this man had come from, uh, fortunately, a pious family. So he grew up in piety many centuries ago, so he didn't have to pass through school and high school and college and all that stuff. And uh, so he went to the monastery quite young. Now about this man, there was a very unusual fact, which nobody knew about because he'd never mentioned it. But from the time he started going to the liturgy and was conscious of it, you know, after his toddler years, he always saw that the church and the holy altar were filled with angelic beings, though he didn't really have a name for them. As he grew older and he saw icons, he realized that those were angels. He didn't mention it because of a, of a curious fact. He made an assumption. He was wrong, but he made the assumption that everyone saw it. So he didn't say anything about it. 
When he went to the monastery, after he had been a novice, after he had been a monk for a while, in a very casual way, he mentioned that that particular liturgy, that particular day, the altar was particularly crowded, wasn't it? And he just observed it. He wasn't being smart, he wasn't showing off, he wasn't demons, he wasn't levitating in front of people. And the people, uh, the monks that he was talking to, said, what are you talking about? Father so-and-so served, Father so-and-so was the deacon, and Father so-and-so was the acolyte. Crowded, what are you talking about? Three people. He said, well, all those other people that were there. What, are you seeing things? Why, are you crazy? And they started to talk to him. And it dawned on him that everyone did not see this. Because of what? His purity, the purity of his mind, uh, the level of his obedience and his hearkening unto the word of God, his love of the Holy Trinity and of the saints. How, how, do, how do you explain that? But he just, he just lived in that dimension in which constantly he was stepping over the line, as they say. Constantly stepping over the line, in and out of that place where the angels and the saints and uh, the Holy Trinity not only dwell, but dwell manifestly. It seems odd to us that here in Bethany, in the town of Bethany, where Christ had set on that rock, which we venerate in the Russian compound, um, when we go on the um, on the tour, the whole tour, and where he sat uh, with uh, Martha and Mary before the tomb of uh, Lazarus, all that had occurred there. It seems odd to us to read the lines that Saint Luke mentions. Luke, who chronicles so perfectly the coming in the flesh of Christ as an infant in Bethlehem now is the chronicler of the exiting of Christ from the dimensions of space and time and earthly, uh, earthly life. And Christ, it says, is parted from them. Well, why would you put it that way? You'd say he left or he rose, or he did this, or he did that, but he is parted. That's what you say when exactly the way it is described by Luke, he's blessing them, and he seems to be pulled. That is to say, in a sense, grammatically, passively, he is parted, not he parts. And you see how, and he is taken up into a cloud. And then they don't see him anymore, and angels come and exhort them. Well, it's all magnificent, of course. And what the angels say is precious. In the same way that you have seen him part, so he will return seated upon the cloud. And the angel knows what those men do not know. They actually expect to live to see it themselves as individual persons. That before they go to their grave, they will see Christ will come back. And we know that there was this expectation. It turns out that like so many like so much of the messianic expectations, they uh, got it wrong. Uh, Christ was not going to return to them that way uh, before their own personal deaths. But what the angels knew was that those apostles and the others were going to pass this on, paradosis, which we translate as tradition, handing on, handing over these things, and that uh, it was important for the men of the last generation 
to know what they would be looking for. And every generation could be the last. In five seconds, it could all be over. Or in five million years. We don't know, as it is made very plain in the Gospel, only God knows the times. It's not for us to know, it's not for us to worry about, it's not, we have to temper the uh, heliastic and the apocalyptic uh, tendencies that come into the hearts of everyone sooner or later if he is, uh, as they say, religious. But we have to temper that. We don't uh, sell the property and, you know, go up with the uh, family dog and cat and sit on the roof waiting for the rapture or something of that sort. That's not what uh, God wants. That's not what we're enjoying to do. This Feast of Ascension, Analipsis, is uh, an incredible one. It is a very mysterious feast. It is filled with mystery, even though the facts are given with simplicity, clarity, and considerable power. But just uh, read the patristic commentaries on this feast. Just read the text again of the feast as we celebrated it last night at the vigil, and so on and so forth, and uh, see for yourself. And as you open every day, whether you do it in the morning or at noon, at lunch or at evening or before you go to bed, your uh, book of the lives of the saints, whether you read in them chronologically the saints of the day or whether you just start at the beginning of the book and move through to the end or whether you study the saints by types, uh, what, however you do that, look uh, closely at these men and women who uh, are constantly stepping over the line, who see what you and I do not see, who know what we do not know, who, uh, who take what we take uh, on faith as the concrete reality that is before their eyes. This is a feast that amazes, that leaves us uh, exactly where it left the apostles and the others who beheld the ascension of the Lord, eyes filled with wonder, a mind left wondering, men and women wrapped in wonder. Christ is ascended in glory. Glorify Him.